Street Data Pod friends, we have two announcements to share. First, you can get 20% off Street Data on Corwin Press's website if you use discount code STREETDATA, all caps. Second, we would love to hear your stories and questions about how Street Data Pod is shifting the way you move as an educator. So check it out. If you have a comment or a question about any episode, you can leave us a voicemail at the new Street Data Pod phone number, 415-335-9997. That's also on our website. You can also send us an email to streetdatapod at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear street data from you all. And we might even feature your voicemail on a future episode. Hi, I'm Shane Safir. And I'm Alcine Mumby. And this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. Today, I am beyond thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with two dear friends and colleagues, Jal Mehta and Gail Higginbottom, who I have known since 2019 when I met them through the Deeper Learning Dozen Project, we'll get into that today, and whose transformational work is depicted in street data in both chapters one and 10, kind of the bookends of this project, if you will. Gail Higginbottom leads from an indigenous lens, prioritizing indigenous ways of knowing and being while supporting decolonial shifts in systems, practices, and thinking. In her current role as district principal for school district number eight, Kootenay Lake in British Columbia, Gail focuses on amplifying indigenous student voice and leading anti-indigenous racism work. She is currently completing an EDD from the University of Western, and she believes the journey of reconciliation is a shared one. And step by step, we are getting there together. Jal Mehta is Professor of Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. A sociologist by training, his work focuses on how to remake the industrial era school system into a modern learning organization that creates passion and purpose for both students and adults. He is the author, most recently with Sarah Fine, of In Search of Deeper Learning, Inside the Effort to Remake the American High School. Jal is the co-director of the Deeper Learning Dozen, a community of practice of 12 districts across the United States and Canada that are seeking to remake themselves for the future. Jal works with teachers, schools, districts, and states in the United States and around the world, seeking to cull wisdom from leading practitioners and share it with the field. Jal is also the proud recipient of the Morning Star Teaching Award at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Welcome to the podcast, Jal and Gail. Welcome, Jal and Gail. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to see you, Shane and Elsine. Really grateful for for both of your time and the stories we're going to share today. If we could start with just a warm-up question, which is, what is an idea or innovation from anywhere in the world, any field that is kind of catching your attention lately? You want to start, Gail? Something that I'm really interested in is the resurgence of traditional indigenous food and fusion, because there's some really incredible recipes and restaurants coming out. So that's something I'm personally interested in. And I'm kind of following on social media a little bit. Give us like one dish that it represents this return, this tradition coming back. Let's see, like maybe Bannock French toast would be an example. Nice. Love that. All right. How about for you, Jal? I've been reading this great book called Creativity, Inc., which is about Pixar, written from the inside. And it's about 
how they made all of those great movies over the years. And Mm. I think it's just a really interesting book because, you know, making one great movie is one thing, but to make a whole swath of them over 20 years, like how do you build the kind of culture where people can be creative, but you still produce really high quality. So I may throw in some more Pixar references as we go, because that's been really top of mind these days. That's great. That's a Saturday morning right there. I love the variety of Bannock Fresh Toast to Pixar. That's such a great opening. <laughs> yes. So we always like to start with story and personal narrative. Storientation is a concept from my first book, The Listening Leader, which is this idea that we have to pay really careful attention to our stories in order to catalyze change, right, in our organizations and, and communities. So we'll start with you, Gail. If you could tell our audience a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and how your own educational experiences as a young person shape the work you lead today. Thanks, Shane. Why Wahwaitup, Gail Higginbottom, and Squaquist, Tay Clinton, Teasket, Race, and Outton. My name is Gail Higginbottom. I'm a band member of Esket First Nations, Alkali Lake from the interior of British Columbia. I have Scottish and Irish settler ancestry on my mom's side of my family. Growing up, I was deeply impacted by what I now understand is racism. Mm-hmm. And I internalized racism and, and, and came to understand that, that personally as a direct paradox to what was raising me. I understood that there was a stereotype that was really negative uh, around me about students, for example, who attended a reservation school. And that reservation school was only a couple blocks away from the public school that I attended. And I understood this because of looks, judgments, words that were being used uh, around me often. Once upon a time, I was the wrong brown girl in the in the wrong situation at school, and I was I was punished through association of of some actions of some other quite mean girls. I now understood that as as a racial attack on a very young version of me, hmm. and so I I bring this forward as an example of of some of the the pieces that helped me understand myself and the paradox that that raised me. And I I bring forward racism as an example of something that's really shaped the work that I do today to shed a light on how important it is and how vital it is that we we tackle this in in schools. Mm. As a leader of Indigenous education, I work inside the system today to address racism, anti-Indigenous racism, equity and reconciliation. And I'm very lucky to work with a beautiful team and allies and community knowledge keepers. And we work together on this work to bring forward decolonial pedagogy, equity, and anti-racism. And I, I do believe that these are the steps towards reconciliation today in schools. Thank you for taking us into your childhood, what it was like to, to be two blocks from the reservation school and to really understand right on some embodied level what was happening around racism even if we don't always have the language as little people and I just appreciate you bringing that here and rooting your current work in that thank you thanks Shane Jal how about for you who were we like to say who was like little Jal and how did your schooling experiences shape who you are today in the work you do 
So I grew up in Baltimore. My dad is Indian. My mom is white. I went to a school called the Park School, which is an independent school, which valued kind of do we ask inquiry oriented learning. So before we got on, we were talking about sort of the pork chop dilemma, which I think comes from Pat Graham and this idea that if you're going to do kind of project-based learning, you need to cook it just right. (laughs) And I just had a lot of good experiences with that when I was a kid in school. And so I think when I got out into the broader world and people were like, you know, problem or project-based learning means non-rigorous learning, I was like, this is just very contrary to 14 years of lived experience. Mm. And then I think with that also, there was a kind of receptivity to children's ideas and the idea that they had a lot to contribute to thinking and doing in the world. And so I think I've carried that spirit forward. So that's sort of one big strand. And then the other big strand is I grew up in Baltimore and Baltimore is a city deeply shaped by racism, redlining, and a whole variety of factors that, you know, create very unequal opportunities. And I played a lot of sports, particularly baseball with kids from across the city. And we got to the end of high school and these kids who'd been my kind of friends and teammates and band of brothers kind of thing, you know, we just had kind of radically different opportunities going forward based on where we lived and basically the schools that we'd gone to. So that motivated a lot of my thinking and being going forward. Thank you, Jal. I love hearing a little bit more about your growing up. And I just want to kind of ask a footnote question on this point you made about inquiry-based learning and the perception that it's not rigorous. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like I've heard people cite John Hattie's, you know, famous meta research to say that like inquiry-based instruction has one of the lowest effect sizes on student learning. And that always shocked me. And I feel like it's probably a question of metrics and the whole purpose of street day is like, how do we measure impact on student learning? But I wonder, Jal, from like within the academy, is that something you wrestled with or had to respond to as a critique? I mean, I think, you know, when you're looking at those kind of big studies, you're looking at big bell curves of things that are done with sort of varying levels of knowledge and skill. So I think partly it's about metrics, like partly if you, you know, spark a child's interest in something and they're still doing that 25 years later, like that's the most powerful thing you can do as a teacher. And that's not going to show up in the like effect size at the end of the semester. So that's that's one thing. And then I think the other thing is that these big studies, they just sort of mask the differences in quality. Mm. And so a lot of the research, you know, there was a big debate in the literature about project based learning and somebody wrote a big article sort of slamming project based learning. And then there was a response and it went back and forth. And where it settled was. Yeah, well, if you just sort of like leave the child sort of free to discover the daisies and then you ask them like how well they can read, like it's not going to go that well. (laughs) But if you teach, you know, you you think you hear what the student is interested in, you're you have an idea of the material and the ideas or lenses, maybe I think good project based teachers bring lenses to questions. Mm -hmm. And then so like maybe a feminist lens or a consumerist lens or whatever. And then the students are sort of applying that lens through something they're interested in. Then I think the kind of depth of understanding can be really high. That was a great follow-up question, Shane. Very great. 
Alcine, it seemed it seemed like that bell curve idea kind of resonated with you. Yes. What was I saying that connected with your experiences? Oh, Jal, we don't have enough time. <laughs> well, it goes back to the, the concept of a bell curve, even where that concept of intelligence not being evenly distributed amongst society, that's a eugenics concept. And so anytime even anyone starts to talk about this concept of bell curve and you're looking at data, in which, right, like, because from my understanding, part of, and correct me if I'm wrong, part of what they're looking at is how does this learning show up? Usually this, the metrics that they're still looking at for evidence of learning is standardized testing. Yeah. And so once you start talking about standardized testing as a metric of learning, and we had Linda on a few episodes ago where you talk about the way in which these tests are constructed, in which they are constructed to be discriminatory, of course, you're going to get a whole bunch of skewed understandings about inputs, outputs, and everything in between. Yeah. You know, it's not perfect, right? And it can be done wrong. Pork chop, right? Can be done wrong. That bell curve idea really, it triggers me in lots of ways. Yeah. You called it. It's eugenicist. And people like to forget that. It's part of why I'm so compelled to connect what's happening in BC to what's happening in the States, because we don't talk about these things in the States. We don't talk about the legacy of residential schools in the United States of America. We don't yep. talk about the legacy of eugenics and systemic racism. We just pretend these things didn't happen. Jal, so you also lead a leadership development experience. I mean, the way Shane talks about it, it's like a whole thing. It's not just, it's like, you know, the Beyonce experience, but for deeper learning. (laughs) And so (laughs) I was loving, I would love to hear the origin story of the deeper learning dozen. Like what drove that idea? Who was involved in the beginning? And how did you come to this idea around what adult learners need in this work? The Beyonce experience. We're putting that on the testimonial section of our website. <laughs> Alcine Mumby says DLD is the Beyonce experience. I, <laughs> I, uh, I'll take that for life. As the three of you know, and some of your listeners may know also, Sarah Fine and I wrote this book, In Search of Deeper Learning, where we went and visited a lot of schools across the US. And one of the big findings of the book was that there was a lot of fabulous practice going on, that there were a lot of inspiring teachers and elective classes and extracurricular experiences and so forth, but that a lot of what what was happening at the ground level that was good was working against the expectations of the system. Mm -hmm. So like the same teacher who was like, you know, plowing his kids through English nine and everybody wasn't enjoying it, was offering, you know, a great elective on, you know, Vietnam or the civil rights movement or whatever it was. And because people had chosen to be there because there was enough depth and time to really explore it because you could bring different lenses to bear on the same questions, et cetera, there was just all this rich learning going on. And so the sort of the idea of the deeper learning dozen was, okay, like there's, that's no way to sort of build a movement for change. If everything that's happening is being kind of hampered by the people who are supposed to be leading us in a better direction. Like how might we shift what's happening at the district and eventually like state and province level? Mm. So that was one input. And then the other input, which I I think you mentioned with the idea of experience was you can't like PowerPoint or like driver diagram somebody 
to like radically changing their assumptions about control or hierarchy or, you know, we're the people who are in charge. So we need to tell everybody else what to do. Mm -hmm. And so it is designed as a kind of experiential learning experience to try to help people see a different way of working. And then the third piece, and then I'll stop, is this is 12 districts across the US and Canada. We benefited a lot from our Canadian colleagues because there are fewer tasks, there's less of that kind of accountability. And so all of those things in a community allows people who are a little further along in their journeys to have conversations with people who are sort of earlier in their journeys. And then over time, people who are earlier in their journeys become the kind of the circle keepers and the people who are more knowledgeable and then other people join and and so forth. So Gail, you have also experienced the Deeper Learning Dozen, but from a different perspective. Can you share a little bit about your entry into that community and the impact it's had on you? So our, our school district, Kootenai Lake, I think was one of the original districts to to jump into the, the Deeper Learning Dozen. And it was just life altering, mm. quite honestly, professionally for me. It sparked a lot of deeper thinking on on thinking that we had already established here in our district and it aligned with, with a lot of our district work. In particular, it aligned with the portfolio that I work in, which is Aboriginal education, working towards reconciliation, which I had mentioned already, but in particular, looking at the role of equity work in terms of Indigenous student agency, voice, and, and equity. So, our province has done a lot of work under the guidance of the Ministry of Education on on equity work and equity scan work. And we were fresh in our learning for, for looking at equity and really looking at ways to amplify Indigenous voice, community voice, parent voice and student voice in, in the work that we were doing. Mm. And so the the Deeper Learning Dozen and the principles of Deeper Learning and the work of, of Shane with Equity were, it was perfect timing, synchronous timing, and it continued to inspire the work that we were already on. And it also contributed to a community of practice that was far beyond our province and, and friendships. So it was a beautiful opportunity for us as a district to come together and, and to learn together with, with other districts districts doing similar work. All right. So folks who are listening are probably already getting a sense of what a deep thinker and leader Gail is and how she moves from such a clear moral imperative. But what you may not also know is she's also a prolific writer. And I don't know if you would use this word, Gail, but I would say almost like a poet. I feel like a lot of your writing is very poetic and very moving. Thank you. As I was finishing the drafting of Street Data, Gail shared a story with the Deeper Learning Dozen community about driving with her grandma to visit her uncle after he had harvested a moose. And it was a metaphor for the work that the community was doing. So I really want to invite Gail to share that story here. I asked her permission at the time to include it in the epilogue to the book, which she graciously granted. But I'd love to give you a chance to tell that story in your voice and share the connection, the extended metaphor that it, what it means to you. So I'm always happy to speak about my family and in particular, my grandma. You're right. I love words and, and words are a way that I find I can express myself. So let me just paint a little picture for everybody here and transport us back to a little town in BC called Clinton circa 1980. 
And what you would see would be some lacy doilies, a mantle of framed photos, a floral couch, a kitchen table with four chairs, and a well-used pack of cards resting on top of a cribbage board. Mm. There would be a hutch with overflowing teacups, and, and we would all be sipping on some coffee or tea ourselves. There would be salmon smoking away on the porch, a deer roast in the oven, and some fruit leather drying in the dehydrator. Mm. And that's my Grandma Brown's house. You would be welcomed in, you would be fed, and we would all be laughing. And on your way out the door, you would have some newsprint wrapped either fresh or frozen salmon and some preserves. My grandma, she would be wearing her GWG blue jeans and, a, and some black cowboy boots, a little light blue apron. That was my grandma. She was out hunting solo when she was 74 years old. When I think about my grandma, I think she was a mighty woman. My grandma, she wouldn't know the words that we use today, indigeneity, equity, inclusion, reconciliation. But what my grandmother knew is she knew the land, she loved her family, she took care of those who crossed her path, and she taught me all of those skills and more. And so when I think about equity, I think about how I was raised, loving arms, kind words, gentle ways. My needs were taken care of, I was seen, I was raised up, and I was encouraged to grow stronger into, into who I was. I was accepted unconditionally, and I was loved. I'm very grateful for that. And I remember so much about my grandma. It's a joy to share some stories. Thinking about that, that moose story and that bumpy road, I was pretty small, but I remember distinctly my grandma saying, be careful while we're driving, drink out of that straw as I'm sipping back on my orange crush. And we had just finished visiting my great uncle way out in the bush. And, and we did see in his kitchen a, a moose that they were harvesting on the floor. And I was thinking about that and the equity work and the intergenerational work that inspires me. Mm. Number one, harvesting the moose. Equity is about translating issues into digestible steps. Mm -hmm. And those steps might include common language or shared tools. Number two, drinking from the straw. Equity is vulnerable work, and in doing this work, we have to create cultural safety, emotional safety, spiritual safety for students, for families, for community, mm. and the bumpy road. Equity work is bumpy, and we have to keep going when it's complicated, and we have to keep going when it's controversial. We need to commit to moving forward. Mm -hmm. Today, equity is the foundation of how I approach leadership, pedagogy, and systems change. And I've learned so much through the DLD from you, Shane, and your books, and from my personal reflections and my family. And we have a lot of work to do, but I really do think that we're on the right track. And Jal, we're going to stay with this metaphor for a minute because it's so helpful, I think. And, you know, how do we navigate this work, especially in these times? You know, and Jal, you're working across the border and obviously the political landscape around education is very different in B.C. and in the States. So wondering, Jal, for you, what is your current moose? What is the straw you're drinking from? What's the bumpy road feeling like as you continue to bring this vision of DLD to life? Yeah, beautiful metaphors, and I, I can feel like I was there, Gail. When we started the DLD on the very first day, our first meeting was at Harvard, 
Harvard and it was in a room called the Elliott Lyman room, which is the most formal room at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. It has the portraits of all of the former deans, almost all of whom were white men on the wall and a portrait doesn't even cover it there in these like gold plated frames that like look like you could be at the Met or something. Mm -hmm. And the people who were supposed to set up the tables hadn't gotten what we had wanted. And so they'd set up things in rows and lines facing the front and the PowerPoint was on and we'd ask people to come in casual clothes, but they didn't believe us. So they were wearing their like formal district attire <laughs> and there were flight delays. And so people had red eyed and landed at eight in the morning. And so like when we walked in at like 8.30 a.m. on the first day, it was just like not a promising situation yeah. in terms of the energy in the room and the formality and so forth. And so, you know, we just like we we moved out all the tables we put people in chairs. We started in a circle. Denise Augustine, who is a friend of this pod and of all of us, sort of led us in an opening. I can't remember what we did in that particular opening. Gail, do you remember? I, I feel like we put a student's name at the center of the circle. I think we did too. So yeah, we just... Get, Denise asked us, like, who were we there for, essentially? Like, imagine a student that you, not imagine, but like name a student for the group that has been important to you and that if this work went well, their life would grow and improve. Yeah. You know, then we did a tree of life, which is an exercise where you essentially sort of draw your own tree, which is the roots are like your ancestors, where you're from, your cultural heritage. And then the soil is like what helps you, what gives you joy in life. So that might be, you know, music, nature, children, whatever it might be. And then the the trunk are your are your values. So like what what do you stand for? What what do you care about? And then the leaves are the the things that you're manifesting, the things you're sort of trying to do in the world that are in line with your values. And so, you know, we have all these like superintendents and so forth, like kneeling on the floor with markers, like drawing these trees. And then we put them up on the walls, including like directly over the paintings of the deans. Like we just like papered over the deans with the, with the chart paper. I mean, we didn't really intend that. We just were like, we need a place to put these up. And like, this is the space that there is on the wall. <laughs> and, uh, you know, by lunch, you've got, you know, well, you know, I'm Catholic and my, you know, commitment to social justice comes from that. Oh, I had a terrible experience with religion, but I got a lot from my parents and grandparents. Oh, like I'm LBGTQ and I was excluded when I was a kid and that, you know, really affirmed my desire. So, and often in the trunks, in the values, you find a lot of commonality, even though the roots are very different. Mm -hmm. So that, that was the beginning, just sort of like trying to kind of sow a kind of common humanity among the participants. And a lot of that is due to uh, John Watkins, who was a partner of ours and helped to start the DLD and was a big part of our first five years. And a lot of these ideas come from things that he came up with. But I think building that kind of culture is, is one, one big piece. John, you wrote a whole book about deeper learning. 
If equity work is first and foremost pedagogical, what are you learning about the conditions required for deeper learning to become real for every child? So my colleague, Sarah Fine, was interviewing a student and she said, you know, you know, what, what do you think about school? And he said something like, you know, people say school is boring, but the real problem with school is that it's fake. Mm. That was kind of a, a light bulb moment, right? Wow. You know, kids get really good or some kids get really good at, you know, reading their environment. And so in theory, it's like math, history, science, etc. But what's actually happening is like, this is how I get an A, this is how I read the teacher, this is what happens in the room, and so on and so forth. And so I think the the key point about equity is that's not great for anyone, but for people who come with dominant cultural capital and support, and, you know, they just kind of, you know, navigate it the way that you or I might navigate, you know, a, a job that wasn't that great, but we needed to, you know, we needed to stay in it for the money, you know, <laughs> whereas for students who, who have non-dominant cultural capital, which is often not supported by the expectations of school, you know, those same feelings can lead to kids, you know, leaving school or ending up in a really bad place. So I think the kinds of transformations that we're talking about are needed for everyone, but would be particularly powerful for the most marginalized students. Yes. I say like schools are like zoos. Like it's an artificial learning environment that we put our kids in, right? We, We talked with Joe Trust last week and he was saying that the kids who reject, who peep the game, they see that school is fake. And and Joe talked about like the, the, the stronger students actually calling bullshit. Sorry for cursing if that's not your thing, but calling bullshit on our system, right? In the same way that that kiddo was like, this is, it's just fake. Very well put. Yep. So this question I'm going to gear towards you, Gail. What are some key learnings and lessons you've come to about what it takes to transform districts? Mm-hmm. Thank you. It has been a great journey and it, it's nice to just pause and reflect a little bit this morning. DLD, it helped me to really understand, as I shared before, equity and my role in leading equity in the district. If I'm thinking back, one of my favorite lessons I learned from the DLD is that equity is structural. Mm-hmm. And I think about that lesson often in my work. And it's a simple teaching and it's also a critical lens for me to look through in my day-to-day work. So here's an example of that. Last year in our school district, we set out to develop an anti-racism policy. And we put equity at the center of that work. And so to begin, we started by asking some questions to to guide that work. And and here's what, what some of those questions were. How do we ensure student voice is leading this work? How do we decide who to include? How do we decide who to invite? How do we do that work safely? How do we ensure students who share their stories are honored, nurtured, and empowered? How do we ensure students are heard and their voices are amplified? How do we ensure these voices are listened to? What do we need to do to show those students that we care, that they matter, and we believe in them? And we had the students lead this work. Their voices were heard and their voices were broadcasted. They were vulnerable. 
and we did our very best to keep their stories safe. Last year, we did pass an anti-racism policy in June through our school board, and it was a really exciting time for our district to, to move some of this work forward. And we know that the work doesn't end with that policy. So the work continues this year with another working group with new voices, students at the center, and with new steps to guide the work from policy into action. And so what we learned through DLD is we put students at the center, we put their voices at the center, and we structure that. And that's helping our district transform one heart at a time. And I really believe that we need those students at the center. We need strong and trusting relationships. We need a vision for change. We need to be willing to walk in, in disruption, discomfort, and we need intentional commitment over time. Those were all lessons I learned in the Deeper Learning Dozen. You mentioned some structures that you've put in place to keep student voice at the center. Can you name a specific structure for our friends trying to do this work in, in Canada or the U.S. or anywhere that they're listening? Yeah, when we were developing the policy, we created a, a, we called it a toolkit, but the students developed the toolkit and it was student-generated activities. And then there was a student video that was a part of that. And the video were, were really student voice examples of, of their experiences learning in schools right here in our school district. And our district is so geographically diverse. Often students don't talk to each other from one area to the other, mm -hmm. even staff from one, one, one school to another. And so it was so powerful to hear students say, yes, I've experienced racism. This is what it looks like. And this is how it impacted me. Mm. It was highly impactful to hear those students. And when we hear that, when we feel what students are experiencing, that really helped us to, to think about what a policy needs to have in it. So this season, we have been exploring the idea of, we mentioned this earlier, generational tensions and divides in the work of educational transformation and, and how to bridge those divides. On page 216 of Street Data in the epilogue in which Gail's story is featured, we write this. Our ancestors and predecessors fought to create space for the dignity and humanity of Black, Indigenous, Brown, immigrant, working class, LGBTQ+, students with learning differences, and others at the margins. We stand on the shoulders of generations of courageous anti-racist educators who refuse to uphold a system rooted in oppression and the devaluation of Black and Brown lives. Street Data is just one more tool in this legacy of resistance a way to unify our vision of a different world with our daily actions. So I'll pause there. And we just wanted to sort of ask you all to comment on this passage and just this notion of generational work um, and the legacies we stand on. How are each of you rooted in a generational legacy? And is street data helpful in any way? How is it helping you to further that legacy? Gail, you want to start? Sure. Of course, I've, I've spoken today a lot about my Indigenous roots. I've shared where I'm from and the impact of my grandma in particular on, on how I was raised. And I'm very lucky that I come from a, a huge family, lots of aunties and uncles and cousins. And one of the jokes in my family is we stop counting cousins at second because there's too many of us. <laughs> and I love this legacy about my family and my roots. When I go home in the summer, I can smell the sweet pine needles in the sun and the wild sagebrush. I'll 
along the banks of the Fraser River and there's always an auntie or an uncle nearby there's always a hug mm. and I like to imagine that the Higginbottoms are, are are kind of famous in this province and that's just me and my love imagining that everyone knows a, a family member famous or infamous and in my family there's there's also lots of sadness and loss and and lots of family members who have passed into the spirit world so when I think about my work I know that I I stand on the shoulder or I like to imagine arm in arm with my family Mm. my late dad on on one side of me with his arm around me my mom on the other side with her arm around around me my grandparents on on either side of them and and so on and so on and so on that's my family. And I know that I am standing here today as a doctoral candidate. And the truth is that my dad had two years of school when he was five and six years old in a log school house in, in rural BC. I don't know if my grandmother attended residential school or, or if she didn't. That has been silenced in my family. And so I can embrace what I do know about my family and and those deep roots that I hold in the province that stretch back since time began. I know that I have a lot more to learn about what that means to me. But Mm. when I think about Street Data, Shane, uh, one of the pieces that I adore about it is that it honors identity. It embraces story and the telling of story, and it seeks to find and, and hear those stories. Street data helps us to understand the depth of students, who they are and where they're from. It teaches us to listen deeply. I have a little quote from your book with our ears, our eyes, our undivided attention and our heart. And imagine how that feels as a learner, supported, encouraged, accepted, valued, empowered. And I hope to always be that educator that always leads with learning and love. And I think that street data will further that legacy, our roots, understanding our roots, our ancestors, and the journey that we're on with our ancestors today. Jal, how about you? Is there anything in that passage that resonated or how are you thinking about your work in a in a generational legacy and in connection to street data? I, I did get a, a huge amount from my parents. My dad is a theater director and, as I said before, came from India, which I think gave him a sort of insider-outsider perspective on the U.S., which allowed us to sort of look at what was happening here with more critical eyes. And my mom was the second in charge of the school that I mentioned, and so all these I not only sort of went to a school like this, we kind of debriefed it over dinner every night. So I kind of had a 14 year head start on all this education stuff because we've been doing it since I like I was like, why did the teacher do this? Why did they do that? I do want to say, though, that I'm a professor. And so I also feel like there's kind of intellectual ancestors Mm. and that there are people who even if you haven't met them that you're building on. And so that's everybody from people who did inquiry-oriented education, like, you know, John Dewey, to a lot of folks we talk about today, like Paul Freire and Cornell West and a number of other folks. But anyway, I do think that this sort of movement-building perspective is the way to think about the, the work that we're engaged in, that we've in- inherited a, a system that is, you know, was intended to be to sort students efficiently and was not intended to be humanizing, liberatory, or all of the other things that 
these ancestors have written about and that we're seeking today. And so yeah. I do feel like we're we're building on their work. And I think that Shane, your and Jamila's work in street data and your listing leader book, both of which I use in my courses, are sort of like a modern you know, instantiation of like, okay, well, like, how would you do that work in the present in schools? And particularly the street data piece. I mean, everywhere I go, people are like, everything you're talking about is great, but what about the assessments? And so sort of changing the nature of how we evaluate and value what's happening in schools. Mm -hmm. It's the piece that's sort of standing in the way of all the other changes we're hoping to make. Helping sort of unleash that piece really opens up all sorts of possibilities. So Gail, I had the privilege of listening to you enact a beautiful witnessing at the close of the second day of a Deeper Learning Dozen gathering. I think it was last May. And you read what felt to me like a poem about Indigenous pedagogy as ceremony. It really, really touched me and my heart. And I think with this Street Data Project and really with all the work we do, the four of us and beyond, I feel like the ultimate measure is does it touch the classroom, right? Does it actually reimagine, reshape, transform what is happening for young people in their learning experiences? I just wanted to invite you to share those reflections as we move to close. Thank you for the question, Shane, and and for bringing me, me back to that, that really beautiful and, and sacred space there. I believe that Indigenous pedagogy always lifts us up to our best selves, our strongest selves, and our strongest voices. It pushes us to honor history and to forge forward to ensure that tomorrow is better than today, to ensure that we are honoring those children who never returned home. Indigenous pedagogy is working from love and, and deep respect for change and the courage it takes to continue forward. We have to feel that in order to know it. Through ceremony, we honor the sacred, the spiritual, the emotional. We honor each other. We lift each other up. It is a way of doing rather than a what of doing. And here are the reflections that I shared on that day when I was called to be a witness. Indigenous pedagogy. It is relational, heart to heart. We can feel it. We breathe it. We experience it together. It is embedded in the land and deep-rooted stories of family, history, and current day. It is warm and heat-generating. It is the voice and words of a chief, strong and firm and kind and welcoming, and the longhouse voice of his nephew, acknowledging and holding and sharing the place and stories of his home. It is connected and connections from the past, weaving together into the future. It is the hard work of truth-telling and healing. It is a circle of many nations coming together. It is the ancestors, mine, yours, ours. It is sacred, indigenous pedagogy since time immemorial, heart to heart. Thank you, Gail. From the bottom of my heart, I think if people who are listening really take in what Gail just shared, it is actually a master class in pedagogical transformation. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll move to our lightning round. We got this. 15 seconds or less. All right, y'all. You are called to listen deeply 
to someone, but what they have to say is triggering. What's the first thing you do? Breathe. A teaching from late Dr. Larry Emerson, protect your heart. All right. Question two, what is a practice or a way of being in the world that keeps you grounded in the face of resistance and oppression and in the struggle for educational justice? I'll start with you, Gail. I love to drum. I have a traditional hand drum that I usually have with me at my side. I I sing and I learn new songs as often as I can. Just being with students. That was the best part of the day when Sarah and I visited schools. We got to spend some time with students. So both sort of seeing the ways in which their eyes glaze over when they're not being given good things to do and their vitality when you sort of let them out that both gives me the sort of need to fight and the spirit to do so. What is one form of street data every educator should gather? Not thinking about data in context. Data is supposed to be a sort of light tool that helps you figure things out, not a you know, massive cudgel that controls everything that everybody does. What I want to say about data is what I want to hear more of. I want to hear more of the success stories from students, stories that kept students in school, what's inspired them in their dreams. That's the data I'm really interested in. Love it. All right. Final one. A great learning experience will change you in some fundamental way. Touch your heart and maybe even bring you to tears. I feel so full, so full from both of you. I think listeners are going to listen to this multiple times because there's so many gems in everything that you've shared. This is like a, this is a class. It's like a master class. I'm going to be studying this one. I'm super excited to listen back to it because, oh, this was so rich. Thank you all so much. I can't thank you enough for sharing your stories and sharing your ideas and doing the work you do every day. So thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It was a beautiful morning. Street Data is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Maya Cueva, and our associate producer is Alice Lopez. Our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe Morgan for social media support and Corwin Press for sponsoring us. And a special shout out to Rocky Rivera for our theme music. If you want to learn more about Street Data and get your hands on a copy of the book, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local, independent, or Black-owned bookstore. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time. Oh, we're clapping on one? I don't, I'm sorry. I don't understand the thing. You want us to clap on one? All right. All right. One more time. (laughs)